Vanessa probably not going to be orthodox because I actually not orthodox think... anyways. <laughs> <laughs> well, music is my life basically. It's my raison d'être. That's the reason of my everyday living. Music really is for ears to hear. I personally like to operate uh, on the premises that I actually know what's going on with the notes. I think when you start separating a certain discipline from the rest of the world, it becomes isolated and it becomes exclusive in the wrong sense of the word. Right now, I feel I'm like this five years old. <laughs> Hi everyone, my name is Grace. I'm your host for this podcast, Life Designer. Capturing once in a lifetime moment, and each encounter is one of kind and unique. Life Designer is looking to genuine and meaningful human connection. In each episode, I will interview an amazing talent coming from all around the world, across all different industries. They are artists, creatives, professionals, entrepreneurs, slash everything, and they're all on the journey to pursue their mission with a passion. It's their storytelling about how they become their own life designer. Without further ado, today, I have a very special guest joining my podcast. Hello, everyone. Welcome to my podcast, Life Designer. Forgive me for being a little bit emotional right from the beginning, but I feel like I've been preparing for this moment for over 20 years since the day I encountered the music and connected to this lifelong intimate friend. I'm just so thrilled to have Zinis join my podcast today. So... <laughs> so invitation. Thank you. Yeah, so all I feel incredibly blessed for this like first time to interview a musician for a full episode about music. And then she reached my core and heart exactly the same way the music does. And she fulfills this uh, non-traditional and immeasurable value in music, which I consider to be the strong why that music is one of the best human inventions and music leads to the infinite possibilities. That's because music is inclusive, empathetic, authentic, and accessible for everybody. Yeah, but the difference is music is exists in my imaginary world, but she's the real human being who consolidates my face in all the idealization about music. I mean, you don't often get like reality and idealization aligned up in there. <laughs> but when it does, the world becomes a place with so much hope and joy. And she also told me with absolute conviction that she already found her voice in the music which serves the meaning and the purpose in her life. She is such strong and online and always tell the stories through the music. But today, let me do the honor and deliver her story for you. So let's dive into the conversation. Hello, Denise. Welcome to my podcast. Thank you so much for the warm invitation. Thank you. Oh, by the way, right now we actually sit together, you know, like, I mean, I always prefer to have the conversation with eye contact, physical proximity. Yeah, this is another thing just feels so blessed out of the pandemic situations. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so now to get started, let's always turn the clock back to the beginning of your life. I mean, the beginning of its magic, right? So growing up, what did you want to do? And I know the music is always so wrong since you were a kid. I should say you built your unique bonding and attachment with music by both nature and nurture. But from learning an instrument at a very early age to embark me on this journey of pursuing the music as a career, yeah, what would you say? Is it like organic progression to it or is it more like, you know, takes a few turn around and pave it to these uh, music professions? So I would say the latter, so rather than a straightforward, uh, just highway run. I actually started off as a young child wanting to enter the profession of psychiatry, so slightly different to psychology. Mm. Psychiatry is where you actually medicate people, give them actual treatments, and I think one of the biggest reasons I did want to pursue it, unlike, so contrary to common belief that most Asians, their parents push them towards med school, mine was a bit different. Um, I think it stemmed from the fact that all throughout my formative years, so my formative years being spent in a country that's different to my motherland, um, growing up in New Zealand, being the only Asian child in the, in the whole school at oh, the time. Oh, yeah. Oh, gosh. yeah. 
So that led, so long story cut short, I was bullied for all six years of my life um, at primary school. Looking back, children don't know any better. So it's not the children's fault at all. Because when you see someone so different and you've never seen this creature in your entire life, (laughs) oh, wow, she's got black hair. Oh, wow, she's eating weird things at lunch. You know, I think for children, it's kind of scary and confronting. So when they don't know any better, they treat different things as wrong um, or oh I can't let her be friends with me so then that ostracization it comes to them as sort of instinctive um, again long story short I keep saying long story short but it ends up being longer anyway but long story short I think I looked into how people are actually healthy on the outside but inside they could be quite messed up. Um, Well, both perpetrator and victim, I think, can be messed up in their own ways. And so from a very young age, I got very interested in how the human mind works, how the human psyche works. Uh, If you could intercept it, I think at a very young age, I thought, oh, if I could intercept people um, at their psychological level early on and... (laughs) Yeah, meddle with it in a way that they'll all be nice people all the time. I think that was more of a young, naive me. Um, Further on, it became a more genuine interest in how to, how how could I help people who were suffering inside? So that kind of turning point happened in, I think it was year six going on to year seven. So yeah, right from early age, I wanted to become a doctor. I knew straight after residency, I was going to go into psychiatry training. This is not decided by me. You have to get the grades first, but, (laughs) you know, grades willing, uh, circumstances willing, I was set on becoming a psychiatrist. And then after my medical science degree, I didn't go straight into med school. Um, I deferred for one year because you're allowed to, at at the school that I was at, you were allowed to defer for one year. Um, I deferred for a year and took a gap year because I was quite burned out at the end of my undergrad degree. Uh, I did work quite hard during my medical science degree and I just needed some time out. Uh, In that time out, I went back to my motherland, which is South Korea. Uh, I did a gap year um, in Korea. Because of who I am, I don't really like doing gap years, doing absolutely nothing. So I got myself a job. Um, I had the fortune of entering quite a large influential company that taught English. You'll see quite a few of us do that around here, um, going back to other countries to teach English. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. So it was one of those programs... I went there independently, so not through a program, um, and applied to a local company. So that's a bit different to the exchange program. And yeah, I really enjoyed that work, which involved educating people. Mm. That got me thinking, okay, when I go back to Sydney, (laughs) do I really want to pursue med school? Because I enjoy this experience so much of teaching people. And then I came back thinking, okay, what is there what are the options on the plate? What can I do to study education? At the time, I thought I was old, 23 years old. <laughs> I can't go back to uni. I'm not going to do that. Um, so what I did do was I prepared for an audition at the Conservatorium of Music because I'd been doing music all my life anyway. Um, thankfully, I'm not sure what the rules are now, but thankfully at the time, the Sydney Con allowed people to just do an audition. And if you clear the marks, then you basically get a place. So that's how I got into the master's program at the Sydney Con. Uh, that qualified me with a music degree, which doesn't, just letting you know, it doesn't equip you to become a teacher in the school, but it does equip you to have that music qualification. So that's how I started teaching privately. And then that became bigger, taught many students. And then the second business I'm doing more, um, it leans more into performing and recording. Yeah. yeah. So I'm managing my own sort of performances. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Oh, gosh. This story. Oh, wow. Where to start? You know? Sorry. It took such a long time, but basically, no, no. yeah. <laughs> Just, you know, first of all, thank you so much for sharing this entire journey of you growing up. Mm-hmm. You know, I think as much as you try to justify, you know, they are just kids. They didn't mean that to bully anyone like, on purpose or whatever. They use some very sugar coating word. <laughs> <laughs> that because once again, 
can reflect you are the person with really, really big heart. No matter what other people treat you, you still try to treat them back with, you know, just you wanted to see the goodness in the people. I might correct you on that. (laughs) Because at the time, I thought, so it wasn't a big heart of forgiving or anything. At the Mm. time, it was, okay, well, if you guys are like that, I'm going Mm. to go find what I can do. So that's when I focused on myself, focused on getting, uh, well, good grades inclusive. That's a default. Mm. But focusing on going on to competitions, um, doing really well and everything. So I think my focus was not about being a good person and forgiving these peers. Mm -hmm. It was more about me becoming better than everyone at everything. Oh, this is the opposite. So, so no, um, yeah, that correction had to be made. I did not have a big part. Um, <laughs> yeah, so that's, I think, as a, as a child, I, I decided, okay, well, if you guys are going to be mm. like that, I'm just mm. going to be on top of all of you. Yeah, I think this is really like the way you, you navigate. Oh, don't forget that you're only just like a kid. You're like in the primary school. <laughs> so look at the strategy you adopted. It's like, I wanted to be the best. Yeah, yeah that was my strategy. Yeah, so I, yeah, once again, <laughs> respect. <laughs> yeah, but you're right, like, you know, you say something about look outside. Some people, they may look like all tied up, get everything together. But you really don't know, like, what is the uh, inside. Mm-hmm. So, like, that's when, like, from very, very early stage, you already developed the interesting about the human mindset. You know, that's why you pursue, like, a psychiatrist. Yeah. yeah. It's like you planted the seed. And in the very beginning, mm-hmm. your intention is always, like, I want to figure it out how the human brain functions. Mm-hmm. But then you have to keep experience, right? You're just ignoring the word, you know, to find an answer for yourself and they went to Korean all this experience of uh, teaching people educating and then came back to Sydney to learn music I feel like through this whole kind of the searching journey you are getting closer mm-hmm. to your purpose like mm-hmm. to your meaning yeah we will address that later mm-hmm. yeah but I really say like this whole past you know didn't really just uh, take place overnight but over time and I'm um, so appreciative like you are strong as a kid you are very strong very tough <laughs> on yourself yeah and then but you also have a very generous heart because it's all coming from the place where you want to help people eventually yeah so now let's continue this story because it's just just get started <laughs> so you said about right now you are doing performing and you're also doing recording yeah that's what I want to say the scope of your music practice is like enormous right sorry in my intro I didn't say that Zenith is playing cello I think that's your primary instrument right yeah cello, cello and piano cello and piano and singing and uh, yeah, so you're performing for some private events and you're also doing your own recording, you're composing music. Uh, yeah, she's a beautiful singer. She got a beautiful voice. Oh, well. thank you. So she's, she's just a hobby though, just letting you know. <laughs> yeah, but we can say everything. Yeah, I think it takes really like all the passion, like all yin, right? <laughs> to fill your life with the music on the such multiple dimensions and in a various form. Because you're a professional musician right now, you're also doing a teaching educator role. So it's going to be very interesting to hear from someone like you I would say uh, like scientist innovation because you also have that background in the medical field they say the back is the scientist innovation so you truly have like knowledge and in two separate but also connected areas so what was your insights about the value of the music on the individual well-being it's, you know like all the emotional values but I think my I have a feeling my answer is probably not going to be orthodox because I actually not orthodox think- anyways <laughs> Um, music really is for ears to hear just like beauty is in the eye of the beholder music is also the beauty of music is also in the ears of the listener so depending on who's listening or depending on who the audience is music can be absolutely meaningless um, if they are in that state of their life or music can be absolutely euphoric it could be an absolute ecstasy. So if we're framing the question in terms of how I view music in terms of my audience, that whole spectrum to answer from, if I'm answering in terms of a creator who is only interested in what I'm doing, what I'm producing, because we always need to think about what sort of creator I am. Am I a creator that just creates out of me, for me, uh, or am I a creator for a certain audience? That's why I talked about the audience, depending on the audience, depending on who's listening, music can be, oh, it's just, you know, it's just a tertiary component of life. Sounds nice. That's about it. Or it could be a really important part of someone's life. If I'm talking about me as a creator who's only interested in 
me. Well, music is my life, basically. It's the driving force behind my every daily living. Uh, by creating sounds, mind you, in the practice room, it sounds absolutely terrible. But by working on it and producing sounds that I can present to my audience, to my clients, whoever's wanting my music, for A, it's my raison d'etre. That's the reason of my everyday living. And then secondary, it is what basically puts bread and butter on my table. But it's really, this order is really important to me. First of all, it's fulfilling my purpose and then it's also feeding me. I am very intentional about this order not flipping around. Yeah. Because when it flips around, I know that that's the point when my music will change and the way I look at life will also change. Yeah. Um, I wanted to like shout this message to all the musicians out there. I'm not saying all the musicians should follow that order, but I know there's certain type of musician like you. This is how they prioritize music in their life. And I'm also appreciative that you address these two pieces. We are not overlook one over another because this is a reality where you can need to not come from in order to sustain what are you doing now. You know, they become your life, it's become your value, meaning drive you every day as you say it's your momentum, consistent momentum on daily. And uh, you also get to make uh, the career out of it. Yeah? Yes, the musician still need to survive first. But the order, yeah, this is everything comes together. I think in the end is like that would make you become the musician you want to be because it has nothing to do with the rewards, the outside, the world expectation, whatever is coming within, right? This is the, what kind of the musician. I wanted to be what kind of person I wanted to be. And also, I wanted to say that, like, yes, for the audience side, I mean, I'm not saying the whole world, everybody, you know, should just love music, the big fan of the music like us, but go person like outsider, I'm not musician, I'm not musical. I don't represent all the audience, but I mean, I shared with you before, like how I build up my intimacy with the music. And essentially, if we think about music, it's made up all the songs. You know, like when the songs are arranged and played in a certain way, it's just printed out all the human beings emotion and feelings yeah i cannot really think of any other human emotions can so easily and mysteriously trigger the unleash all those feelings you know like anger sorrow happiness sadness yeah i wanted to address this two skill you know this uh, intellectual skill and uh, you know empathetic skill we actually have a bit child before so how did you like apply these two skills into your performing uh, playing the music or making the music mm. Playing music is just like any profession in that there must be both sides of the human brain activated, which is, as you described, intellectual and then the emotional side. This also varies depending on the musician you talk to, but to me the balance is really important. If I'm just emoting and just feeling the, the sounds that are on the page presented to me and trying to just feel my way through the sounds, it doesn't quite cut it for me because without the intellectual piece of information about what the composer was going through or what the title means even or what the structure of the music is, what kind of key it's in, what background, what socio-political environment was this music built in. Um, all of those contexts do really matter to me. So the research must be there. The reading must be there. Looking into the architecture of the time, that needs to be there. Looking into what social movements were happening at the time, mm -hmm. that's important to me. Looking at what the composer was going through in life. Was he going through a divorce? Was he going through um, a new romantic relationship? Was he going through an adulterous affair? Anything. These contexts, are, I'm not saying that I condone the composer, mm. but I need to actually know what's going on in their life in order to work on what kind of sounds I want to produce. Yes. Yeah. Mm. So, for example, this is going to be a bit technical and maybe a bit of jargon, but the same, so there are note names in the Western scale, um, C, D, E, F, G, A, B, C, D, E, F, G. It goes on like that. But say, for example, so Twinkle Twinkle Little Star, it's C, C, G, G, A, A, G. And I won't be singing because it's <laughs> in the morning. Yeah. But say, for example, so that, that was composed by Mozart. But say, for example, Snoop Dogg composed the same piece using C, C, G, G, A, A, G. Those two sounds that I produce, even if I use the same instrument, even if I play it on the piano, it's going to be different. Yeah. If I am just emoting and feeling purely um, and approaching my musical creation from an emotional stance, 
then my CCGG AAG for Mozart's one is going to be exactly the same as Snoop Dogg's one because I am me and the way that I feel those notes are going to be the same. Yeah. But if I know the context behind why Mozart composed that or how he composed that or what he was going through in life when he composed that, that juxtaposed next to what Snoop Dogg is going through when he composed that song, then I'm going to approach those two pieces very differently. Therefore, the sound that I produce is going to be different. So I think, um, yes, emotionally connecting with the notes, the sounds, that's important because at the end of the day it's a creative act and you're trying to convey your emotional message to your audience. But also I believe, this is all personal, by the way, because different musicians work differently. I personally like to operate uh, on the premises that I actually know what's going on with the notes. So the very basic will be, as I keep saying, the composer's life, but also beyond that, the social environment of the time. Um, I think I might have briefly, in our personal chat, um, I mentioned Shostakovich. He was a very suppressed composer. He's not the only one, but it's the he's one of my favourites, so I go to him as an example. He was in the Soviet Union era, so that means that a lot of his creative acts were censored. Um, he wasn't able to compose just whatever he wanted. So all of that does reflect in the sounds that he produces or the instruments he chooses. For example, if he uses a cymbal, he doesn't always crash the cymbals. He gets like a special saw and he soars against the cymbal and it creates this very um, painful, like imagine construction work using electric saws. Mm -hmm. It creates that kind of sound in some of his compositions. And I associate that with his anguish Mm. from being repressed. So if I don't know about his life, then I'm just going to think, oh, that's a weird sound. That's painful. Mm. That's almost noise pollution. This isn't music. But because if you know his life, if you read up on the background, then you know that, oh, he's probably trying to express his, his angst. Yeah. Um, wow, this is such a big education, particularly on the outsiders, because you're right, like if we um, stay on the surface level, enjoy music, it's kind of just uh, move our emotions. If we, we didn't really, really dig the in to the pieces we had, then we probably won't be able to taste the real beauty and uh, you, you can unlock it, the deep grand feeling. Like um, this is about why music education is important. We, yeah, first we have the awareness, exactly to what extent we really appreciate music and why we need to know about all the history and the story behind. For the musicians, I guess you have to really, first of all, open yourself up to that honest and authentic work, even like it was traced back to 100 years ago, like when you played all the classic music. Um, I think music document archived so many history. And also, um, lots of the, uh, the human story needs to be, should be honored and memorized. And um, music has an empower yeah, to encompass that and then legacy be continuously passed on to the next generation. And, um, and the musicians, you, wow, this is a huge responsibility, you know, but you truly like take that responsibility. That means you, on the emotional or intellectual level, yeah, you have to absorb like all the facts, emotions, the feelings. Like we have these kind of conversations. Education is important, like the music serial, exactly how we see the music push forward the civilization, the world development. This conversation will be heard by the audience who ever came through and probably will unite them in a certain way, connect them to the music on a deeper level. Thank you so much for detailing that to share your all the professional knowledge. We may not be able to capture everything you said. It can be a bit technique, but it's like not igniting people, arise our curiosity, and uh, we began to search, explore more behind that. Yeah, actually, I was going to ask you that question about non-transactional value. Now, I think we kind of already know why we got this non-traditional value on a very bigger scale. What do you say this value, like how it contributes to this community resonance or even like the whole world unity? With any profession, I believe if there's a will, there is a way to give back to the community. And I believe that is true for whatever you work in. So music inclusive, uh, could be art, could be architecture, could be interior design, it could be fashion design. Um, some people associate certain professions with being able to give back or being unable to give back. 
but I believe that's really up to the individual. For example, with music, uh, you could easily go to community centres or go to refugee centres and nursing homes and provide community concerts at no charge and you could give lessons to the underprivileged without any charge and that's a non-transactional way of creating music. You're not. Is that sort of the question you were getting at or is, is it slightly different? Yeah, I think, yes, like uh, the non-traction value, uh, I was thinking about like differentiating music from like some other forces like economic power or tech power because um, they are generated the more visible, tangible creations. I mean, don't get me wrong, I appreciate all those power. They all significantly advance the world development. But this non-tractional value only is so unique in the music because it moves people part in the high school like first time one of my friends and shared this music track uh, is you you must play in the channels but this is the first time i feel like someone just opened the outside world to me through a music track so you see the power of the music it totally opened up the world for the girl who know nothing about outside the world yeah, so it's really like expand my horizon. I know the saying is like, you know, it's very exclusive. Like only certain privileged people can have like, the chance to learn the instrument or build the musicians. But I think that's misinterpreted like exactly how the, the music or the art actually impact everyone. You know, it's inside. Music do, don't discriminate everyone. You know, if you choose music, music will never fail you. So we all know music is healing power. But after that, I think the real question is how we can actually really get music to be more inclusive to, you know, accessible to everyone. So you actually somehow answered my question, you know, like we're doing all these free events or a charity concert, you know, and then how that bring the community like together. So that's how I feel, like non-transactional value. Sorry, did that make any sense to you? No, no, thank you. Yeah, mm-hmm. no, it's it's clear. Um, thank you for the clarification. I I think I said this briefly earlier on in the conversation, those with the ears will hear, that could on the surface come across as quite callous and yeah. dismissive, but I also will repeat it and I stand by the comment because depending on the circumstances of each individual's life, they could be in a state where, for example, you mentioned a charity concert where a lot of people came and listened to me play. Not every single one of them will experience immense joy. That's the thing. <laughs> yeah. But if you so, choose to come, yeah, you're more so likely to... Yeah. I think music, it, it is beautiful mm-hmm. and I want to create beauty, therefore I'm in it. And that's what gives me my purpose of every single day yes so i'm not belittling it at all Mm. or i'm not dismissing that at all Mm. because that's like that's almost being hypocritical about my own life but what i'm saying is um it would be quite naive of me i think to think that my music will bring every single listener joy um what it will bring though is to each person listening to my music, what they will reap, it could be positive, it could be negative, it could be nothing, but what each of them will take away home with them is that I try to make a connection with them, that they will take. So I think ideally, yes, my music will give joy to every single listener. That is the ideal scenario. And that's where we're trying to go towards. But I don't know the story of everyone's life, right? And I haven't sat down with every single one of my audience saying, okay, so what are you going through? Or what's happening in your relationships? What's happening at work? What's happening to your kids? What's happening to your family? Is mum's dementia any better? How's dad's cancer? Like I haven't sat down with all of them having that talk. So when they're going through whatever it is in their life and they're listening to me play, for example, a very joyous piece of music, it might actually not sit that well with them. But what they will take away is, okay, she's trying to convey this message to me. She's trying to make this emotional connection with me through the sound. So I think um, that in terms of that non-transactional value, I think for me, I would define it as making that connection. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, good, good illustration. You know, in Avatar, I'm not, I'm, I hope this is not spoiling. Oh, I don't think it's spoiling. But you know how the avatars, they connect with each other using, what is it? You know, they, they like take their tail. Uh-huh. Is it their tail or is it their hair? And they connect with each other. What do you call it? Have you seen Avatar? No. Oh, okay. Sorry. <laughs> That's all right. Um, 
I think it was their tail or their hair and they make connections with each other like by holding their tail together. So that's kind of what I'm trying to do with my music. <laughs> yeah, so we did chat about that. Not just you, I think for all the musicians, it's never about getting everyone. Like music, the like big fan of the music, like me sure. I think what it really like musicians doing here is to make that offer. Mm. Yeah. And then, like everything we're talking about, music, power of music, value, it's really like just uh, coming from a musician and from a person who loves music. You said last time, when you truly love something so much, you just can't help to share to others. So we won't intentionally ambitions to, you know, to say we should connect the whole world just through the music, music can save the world. I think that it just go against the humanity uh, on every level. All I just keep addressing is like igniting, igniting, you know, just offer you a means or a tool or a possibility. But will it actually connect you? No, it's so individual. We wanted to share to everyone. Who knows? Like my friend who sent me you, you must try it. And I accepted it, you know, by choice. But I think human is wired to seek for connection. But that means we connect to everybody. You don't have that emotional capacity either, to be honest. As musicians, you are right. You couldn't possibly go to talk to each of your audience to get to know about their story and then trying to push your music to fit them in their life. It's no way because you're just one human being. And what you can do is just really focus on... <sighs> practicing that piece, trying to really deliver it within the best capacity. If the people connect, this is spontaneous. Or even for any kind of artists or creators, and the work we are producing here, first of all, I think it's not selfish. It's a service personal fulfillment. And other than that, we do have this intention of serving others. So whoever feel want to volunteer me, uh, yeah. <laughs> connected to that and kind of got some value out of there and that was extra bonus because you also teaching the music particularly for the kids education I wanted to dig in a bit here you know what's your vision for the music development and the music educations I don't teach that much anymore mm. yeah. so um, I'm probably not the best profession professional to talk to about how education works because at the moment I've basically just kept a few students that have been learning with me for a very long time and it's more of a it's strange to say but it's more of an auntie nephew or auntie niece kind of relationship more than an actual professional educator I am very intentional to make sure there's a split between the boundaries so they don't feel like this is just auntie playing with them uh, because a lesson is a lesson at the end of the day and uh, that delineation must be there. But I wouldn't exactly call it the most um, textbook types of teacher-student relationship either. So depending on what you want to ask about education. Uh, maybe like in a more general sense, because you begin to learn music when you were a kid, right? So I learned music when I was back in primary school. But when you are so little, you don't have like tiger parent like push you up and then you just give up quite easily. But now I probably would say that's the things I regret the most. Currently, my niece is also learning piano or other instrument because they are kids. They don't have much experience. And they sit there to learn this instrument. It's really like mechanic activity. <laughs> if you don't push them, they just give up very quickly if they feel, ah, it's boring because it is hard, right? All this technique training. It can be uh, monotone, painful, and uh, highly uh, concentration required for a five-year-old. Uh, yeah, and you cannot expect five-year-old to emotionally connect to the pieces that involves uh, complexity of the human emotions. Yeah, simply because they haven't fully really established their emotional candidate yet. So how we can provide the kids with a right guide that help them to stick to all this uh, technique training um, yeah until one day they feel genuinely uh, may not necessarily yeah connect to the new day yeah so they can make their own decision of pursuing the new day or not in the future I'm going to start with the caveat that I personally mm. have the opinion man is all lazy um, we just want to if we're standing we want to sit down if we're sitting down we want to lie down if we're lying down, we just want to sleep. <laughs> so that's my caveat about what I, that's, that's my view of humanity. Um, it's not very positive, but <laughs> sorry for being so pessimistic, but yeah, it, we, we are very lazy and um, if not given structure, I think it's very easy to just do whatever we want, mm. but is doing whatever we want really the way to live a fulfilling life. I want to say fulfilling rather than happy because yeah, yeah. I think happiness mm. is 
it's a dangerous word actually um and i think depending on the person that you give the word to i I just find the word happiness it's not defined very well yeah but um that structure i'm not sure if it leads to fulfilling life Mm -hmm. so i think with educating there needs to be structure there needs to be regulations in place i'm not saying it needs to be regimental Regimental is different to regulations. Um, regulations are safe boundaries within which um, you're trying to say, okay, these are the rules that everyone will adhere to and that helps those people under those regulations become a, well, function as a society rather than just individual islands, yeah, individual volatile islands who might just do whatever they want at any given time. They're like spontaneous fireworks, basically. So, yeah, in terms of education, I think regulations are important. Guidelines are important. In terms of guidelines, though, um, there is one thing I try very hard to do in my lessons, which is not saying no or don't. It's hard, but the more I practice framing things in a positive way, so rather than if, if a student makes a mistake, oh, that's wrong, do it again. If I say, oh, that sounds very interesting, sounds like your own composition, let's try a different way. And then the different way is actually the right way, by the way. <laughs> So then, then the second time around, I point to the notes or help the fingers work in a certain way so they actually achieve the right note. Um, and then the child doesn't really know what I'm doing linguistically, mm. yeah. but I believe that positive approach does sediment in them. So rather than being told, no, don't, that's wrong, that's a mistake, that was the wrong note, do it again, rather than these being deposited into the child's brain, subconsciously, by the way, yeah. uh, oh, that was interesting. Oh, you really think that's the right thing? Yeah. Or, you know, just there are other ways to frame the same thing. And if that kind of language deposits into the child, I do believe the long-term effect is quite different. And if I'm sitting there practicing with them, practice is not boring. I think for children, anything that they have to do solitarily, just left on their own saying, okay, practice this 500 times, that's painful. That's excruciatingly painful. But if you're sitting there as the teacher or the parent, practicing it with them, um, giving them stickers each time they practice, make it into a game. If I gave you a red sticker this time, maybe give a yellow sticker the next time. Um, If you make it into an entertaining game, then it's not painful anymore. Practice is not painful. It doesn't become a, okay, you have to do this. Um, You have to sit there for the next 30 minutes and you have to complete this by the end of today. Yeah, I think... Um, I agree. Mm. I think it's gotta combine this structure, this discipline, and also like the positive approach. Mm. Yeah, together it actually applies to like all the human beings, right? Whether you are kids or adults, because you're right. I think if you don't be cautious, mindful about it, this laziness inside us just gonna kick it in very easily. And this stage of our life, fulfilling is a such a luxury, and also it's a kind of ultimate pursuing. And happiness is temporary, is fleeting. I personally appreciate this structure of discipline in place, but also I'm trying to like achieve that balance and abundance. Addressing mm-hmm. your other part of the question, which yeah. I actually didn't answer yet, mm-hmm. um, which is, well, children don't really know all the emotions yet. You mentioned the word mechanical. It's true because children don't know grief yet. Um, for example, some people has, um, you know, maybe passed away in their family when they were very young or... Yeah, there are certain emotions that develop over time and as you live life, basically. And for children who haven't really lived life to that point yet, then the emotional cabinet might not be as, as explored, I would say. But in that case, it's quite easy because all you have to do is talk to them a lot. And because children also still feel things on the playground, in school, um, in the classroom, with their teacher, in conversations with their friends, children have their own emotional cabinet. Mm. And all you have to do is you have, as the adult, you need to look into what sort of emotional cabinet they have. And you're not trying to impose adult emotions onto the child. You're trying to understand what emotions this child already currently has hold of and try to drag that out in their music. Or, for example, they might feel, they might not necessarily feel sorrow, but they might still feel a bit of sadness when a friend takes their crayon without asking. Like, we might not even think about that, but for a child, it might be quite sad, or it might be annoying, it might be frustrating, or it might be a bit. I wonder why that friend doesn't ask me permission. And then you try to unpack that episode in the sound they're making. Mm. For example, if there's a 
well, on piano for at least, I think everyone's heard it in a cafe or restaurant at some point in their life. Um, that one. Um, Beethoven had immense frustration when he was composing that piece because he couldn't be with the woman he loved. Um, it's for her, for Teresa, although we, we say for Elise. Um, you can't exactly explain unrequited mm. love to a five-year-old, for example, mm. who might be playing the piece, but you can talk about a different form of frustration. So it doesn't always have to correlate directly if there's a piece of music you're teaching and it's about unrequited love because you've fallen in love with a woman who's already married. You can't exact. it's not appropriate to take that directly and teach the child and tell this is what it is about. Um, but there are ways to unpack that grief or frustration in terms of language that that child, that five-year-old would understand. Maybe the five-year-old has a crush at school, you know, and you want to spend more time with her, but you have to go home because mum says it's home time. Yeah. You know, Mm -hmm. there are appropriate languages and episodes that you can bring into the picture. Mm -hmm. And then that taps into the child's emotional cabinet and they can try and, you know, really live that out onto the piece when they're practicing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think it's almost like just um, help the children begin to learn about all the human emotions and also like the way of express it. Like because I was like one of those overprotective adults. I still wanted to protect this innocence forever. But absolutely children they also have their feeling and emotions. If they have anger, sadness, that need to release it out. Maybe the approach is a bit different from the idol, but I think the music also offer like a past outlet to release out that feeling and emotions help the children to build out a healthy emotional navigation system. Overall it just helps to cultivate a wholesome cat <laughs> and, and extend into the Idaho they will deepen and all shape their interpretation even the same piece they played when they were kids but this is the evolving journey for every single person so mm, for yeah. that it's really yeah. important that from a very young age mm. so if you have a four-year-old student five-year-old student you show them pictures as well so music I think when you start separating a certain discipline from the rest of the world it becomes isolated and it becomes exclusive in the wrong sense of the word but when you teach music together with what sort of artworks were there in that time um, show them photos of the buildings that were around at the time so the architecture and why they built buildings that way did they not have enough material so for example baroque era which is the era the name that we give to the 1700 to 1750-ish bracket. The architecture is absolutely gorgeous. That's when church had the most money and the most power and all the religious buildings were ornate and the columns were just done to the nth degree detail versus, say, come back into post-World War II when there's very famously brutalist architecture, um, basically concrete slabs built high up into tall buildings. So musicians either performing or composing in those two eras are going to be completely different types of music, um, or musicians and composers, so therefore their product will be different. Then maybe you might feel for a five-year-old this is too much information or it's too hard for them to understand, but there are very easy ways to show them, okay, so this is the name, Baroque is the name of this time period, look at the buildings in this time, and then show them brutalist architecture, look at the buildings in this time. It's because people fought a lot in this brutalist era, explaining war. Five-year-olds can understand it if you actually put in the effort of making it understandable. Um, and then after fighting, they didn't have money. All they could do was just build big buildings made of concrete. In the Baroque period, buildings were so pretty and beautiful because they had a lot of money. Even, yeah, even five-year-olds understand a lot of money. Yeah, Yeah. so, and then you also introduce the artists of that time, show them the artworks that existed in the eras, um, show them who was in power. So King Blah was in power at this time. Uh, We didn't have kings Mm -hmm. after 1945. Each different country just had their own heads of state. Um, Back in the Baroque period, Europe was the strongest power. Mm -hmm. That was the center of religion. Christianity was the most powerful in that time. So you start teaching these children contexts and history, the politics, sciences back in 
the Baroque era, the sciences weren't that developed. Uh, we didn't have surgery yet, so people died very easily. Diseases were rampant, so therefore it was much um, closer to heart to them that God was in charge of everybody's lives, so that music was always composed, nearly always composed for God. So then that also is reflected in the types of sounds that are produced in the music that was composed in that time. Then you explain that to the child. So religion, science, politics, art, architecture, even the fashion of the time, because children understand fashion. They like pretty things. They like visual things. So then you show them the Baroque era dresses, the ornate dresses that they wore, try and, and then say, oh, try and play like you're frolicking around in this dress. And then they'll actually visualize that in their head as they play music compared to um, showing the military uniform of the World War II era. Then they might be able to visualize that and produce a much drier sound. All of these things, all of these storytelling components, that's very important. And yeah, I believe it's crucial in education. Oh, you know, right now I feel I'm like this five years old. <laughs> oh gosh, this is a, like the best examining and modeling about how those music education can pretty much penetrate it into like every aspect of the entire human civilizations. And the music, science, art, architecture, story, history, all these great civilizations we created all can be intricately interrelated to each other. And you perfectly elaborate and articulate this whole picture. Also, don't forget the kids. They're the biggest curious one in the world, right? If you offer them that fascinating world mixed all the different forms of the art, they are kids that are naturally curious about everything. I think you do kind of like take them into the world which is filled with the infinite possibility there. So education is so important, which brings up my next question about the infinite possibility because you kind of already draw this whole picture. I think music is like a painting and I already say in this painting, it's like the double of the music. It's definitely got a lot of color, a lot of shape, structure, concrete, uh, human story. So it's a fascinating word. So I wanted to ask you about what is the music uh, infinity, like infinite possibility means to you. But I go for my outsider opinion first. Here is like uh, the musicians, they all have their unique interpretation and the presentation to play music. Yeah, so each musician different way to play even the same piece. Yes, but musicians, they also evolve over the time. So they, I believe, they also maybe approach the music same piece quite differently and different season of the life. It's one way I say, you know, the inflict. Uh, but then say composing-wise, composing music. So one of my favorite, the Japanese composer, uh, musician, Ruchi Sakamoto, once said, when you make music, it's like creating a new language that never exist. So I guess that probably offer this ultimate path to all the musicians to achieve that infinity in the music. So what is that music infinity means to you? I think you sort of answered the question as well um, because each musician is different and contrary to what some people say, they say um, there are musical talents, there are non-musical talents. I don't believe that. I think there's music in every single one of us. So if you had to put a mathematical number, I mean, I think we've hit 8 billion people now in the world population. I would describe the infiniteness of music as 8 billion. And then multiply that by whatever permutations um, that you mentioned, the parameters of life changing, then the sounds that you're going to produce are going to change because the emotions you feel are going to be different. Uh, Life stages, so the experiences you're going through, that's going to change the music you make. But yeah, I would start with the number 8 billion um, because all 8 billion are musicians and then just multiply that by all the different possibilities of their life. Oh, yeah. Amazing. Um, also about, like, say, when you create music, like, mm, I'm very interested about the sounds because you are arranging the different sounds together to create a piece. How did you feel about this uh, authentic form, like the uh, realness of the sound? So what I mean is, like, um, say the musicians, some of the musicians, they are go on the street, or, you know, like to collect the sounds, like just, you know, the sounds of the car, the sounds of the city is that you original for without any like post-producing it. And they like to mix this like very raw sound into their music creations. Because oftentimes, you know, even for the musicians or the audience, we kind of trying to, uh, you know, hear the harmony in the sound, right? 
you know, like we are kind of like human nature to against that discord in some because we just like enjoy the harmony or the synchronism. But there are some musicians they just very authentically accepted that original of the song, whatever you know that could be discord, that could be asynchronism. Yeah. So how do you confront with the sounds? You know, authenticity, that authenticity of the sound. Yeah. I think any sound compilation that has intention is music, and anything that just happens without any intention, I consider this is personal. I consider it as noise. Okay. So um, it is a pretty nihilistic view uh, and very black and white, which is rare for a musician. I think um, it's quite unaccepting as well. I, I would describe it as unforgiving. Uh, because I do know musicians who are more accepting of the fact that incidental sounds are also music. So I'm quite different in terms of that regard. So same random sounds put together. If there's an intention behind that and they're curated, I appreciate that as music. But if there's just a compilation of random sounds and there is no story to it, then it's the same sounds, but I disregard that. Mm, okay. So yeah, it is a bit harsh, but I stand by it. That's the stance yeah, I take. I think it is a very personal. Yeah, yeah, it's a personal choice. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Uh, same as art, though. When I appreciate art, when I see people get a bit divided on, say, there's a piece of artwork and the whole canvas is just one color, people often, <laughs> they very often, the frequent question is, how much is this worth? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, how many to me, that doesn't really matter. To me, the story behind that matters. The story that the artist tells about that is important. It could be a fake story. How would I know, right? But <laughs> all I can take is the it's surface level. Like, yeah. <laughs> um, the story behind the artist or the artwork. If it's just, oh, I just painted it, painted the whole canvas black because I felt like it. I personally, and I think I'm allowed to have personal opinions, yeah. um, I personally don't think of it as artwork, even though an artist did it. Whereas if the artist is able to tell me about, just tell me something about it, then it's instantly artwork to me. So it might feel like wordplay and it might feel like that's not a very concrete reason to be divided, but that's my, that's my stance. Um, Same as music. Yeah. Same as music. I think it's also personal, but I personally uh, resonate with you. So you gotta have that intention behind, right? Like purpose. Because expression is individual. You can express in your artistic, aesthetic way, but also kind of ref- uh, reflect our personality a little bit. Oh, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> How can our personality <laughs> not come through? <laughs> yeah, just like, it's gotta be some you know, story or like intention behind. I mean, randomness, I appreciate it random, spontaneous in a way, but it's like when you put it, um, uh, together, yeah. So we are a bit like a, a curator, you know. Like if, if we're working in the art gallery, we probably will choose to be a curator, editing, arranging, curate everything together to formulate it. Like could be very innovative, but also meaningful form. And uh, again, personal. <laughs> uh, yeah, so we can you know, use that to get away with everything. <laughs> Every comment we made today, it is personal. But because on a personal level, we have so much in common that, you know, in terms of those uh, perspectives. And so I guess that's why we have had just conversations going. Yeah. 